I'm Trevor Cummings, and these are my Thoughts on Money. Hello, and welcome to the Thoughts on Money podcast, what we like to call Tom. I am Mr. Trevor Cummings here uh, doing the podcast in Newport Beach, California, where it is 82 degrees. This is wild. What's going on here? In February. I did. I'm here with Sean Latimer. I'll introduce you. Hello, hello. Uh, I did tell one of our coworkers that moved here from New York. I told him, I said, hey, from my experience, February is a fluke month. Sometimes it's a good beach weather here in, uh, in Newport Beach, California. That's true. Just don't go in the water. Yeah, don't go in the water because it's freezing cold. <laughs> so that's good advice. And then the second thing is June is not a good beach month. That's true. June gloom. June gloom. Anyway, we didn't come to talk about the beach. So we're going to talk about an article I wrote called Misunderstood. And then I started my career at a bank, as a banker. I figured out that I wanted to be a financial advisor, and I joke around that um, in the classifieds, there was no ad that said, looking for an advisor with no experience. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I had to find my way to uh, break into the industry. So I started on the banking side. I didn't like it very much. Um, Sean knows, because we're friends, and uh, I vented through that season of my life. Um, but let me give you the short story of kind of one of the reasons I didn't like it. Some focus group, some leadership team, somebody that's doing the analytics in the background at this bank I worked out figured out at one point that, hey, clients that have multiple products with us, maybe they have a a banking relationship and a mortgage and a credit card. When they have three or four products, they are less likely to leave the bank. Mm -hmm. More engagement means lower attrition. Here's where the story goes really bad. So then they... uh, got some folks uh, that were sales leaders to go out and set up an incentive compensation plan and a sales team to go say, hey, if we get more wallet share products uh, on their side, uh, then we're going to lower attrition. So you created this bank with this huge sales force, um, convincing people to open accounts they didn't need and uh, placing credit cards that they didn't know that they had. Um, And the, the end of the story is a CEO that gets fired, um, is lawsuits, and uh, a very well-known bank that now has a blemish on their record. Well, and you you always say this, you know, incentive drives human behavior. So if you take salespeople and you tell them, if you do this, you will be compensated for it, they're going to find the most efficient way and fastest and cut shortcut or short cut corners yeah. to make that happen. And that's, that's what they did. Yeah, they totally did that. And I remember working there and not wanting to engage in some of these behaviors and looking at it. And I always, I always thought this, and this is kind of, we're going to, we're going to take a really strong pivot in this article on, on where we, we take this. <laughs> we're truth. doing that a lot lately. <laughs> we are. Yeah. But the, the truth that I graduate, uh, that, that I, I gathered from that was there's this problem with understanding the difference between causation and correlation. So in my thinking, and you can tell me if you disagree, Sean, but I'm thinking, Hey, before any of this started, if there was a bank customer that had multiple products with the bank, it's because they like the bank. Yeah. They like the relationship they had with the bank. So why were they not leaving? Because they like the bank. Yep. They like the relationship they had with the bank. It sounds like I'm like putting this on loop. So the, the, the causation correlation part was, yes, there was this correlation that they had multiple bank products and they stayed as a bank client. Uh it wasn't causation. Mm-mm. It wasn't that if you just gave somebody a bunch of products. If you that, got them past that one product mark from three to four, then they're going to stay. No. And the problem with that is that when you make that mistake between causation and correlation, um, you cause more more harm than help. 
Well, yeah, because when you open fake accounts for people, they probably don't like the bank anymore. <laughs> yeah, and it's just so wild to now zoom out and think, nobody else thought that? Like, nobody else thought, man, this is probably not a good idea. For companies that um, hire outside uh, consultants to give, um, you know, customer satisfaction scores and all that, with all of that, nobody thought to think, hey, maybe we're confusing causation and correlation. Well, they they track these KPIs, right? And and then it's top down. So regional manager goes to his, I don't know, 100 branches and the district manager says, these are the four things I'm going to look at. KPI I'm, is these key performance key indicators. Performance indicator. I'm going to give you the answers to the test. These are the four things I'm going to look at. So when I go to your branches, this is what I'm going to look for. And so what does the district manager do? They go to their store managers. Here are the four things that matter. Nothing else matters. Do this. And so I, I guess I'm not surprised, but you're right. You, you think at some point someone would say, hey, this seems like it would give the client a bad experience. And they're probably like, you're just not a good culture fit. You just don't get it. You're not totally. running the play. <laughs> yeah. And there is where I plant my foot for that pivot. And it's this idea, okay, I think I gathered a truth from here that sometimes people confuse correlation causation and it can cause them to do things that don't make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. So now this article then becomes a warning to investors. So I believe that right now there is a common concern that investors have. And I will play the role of an investor. I am concerned because stocks feel overvalued and interest rates are very low. So I feel stuck. I feel nervous about buying stocks and I don't feel like there's a strong incentive to buy bonds. What else is out there? There's this entire world of alternatives. So then we look at the backstory on alternatives. Um, a lot of it comes from institutional investors. So think about things like uh, endowments or charitable institutions. And you go break down how is their chief investment officer designing their portfolios well, over the last 10 or 20 years, they have been heavy users of alternatives. Um, the, the leading face in that, in that world, uh, no longer with us, but Mr. David Swenson, former CIO of the Yale Endowment, a huge portion of their portfolio was in alternative and illiquid assets. I don't know if he coined this term, but he's the first person I heard uh, use this. And I, I, again, I don't like using finance words, but this is the only word I can use. He defined this idea of an illiquidity premium, that um, he was going to use these alternatives and these illiquid assets because there was an additional reward to gather here. My whole point is I'm very scared that people are going to be pitched alternative products with this statement. There is a premium associated with illiquidity, and because this thing that I'm presenting to you is illiquid, then therefore, you should grab a premium. So what I want to kind of break down with you today is, is it the fact that something's illiquid that drives the premium, or do we have to peel back the curtain? Is it there's another feature that makes it illiquid that then drives that benefit or that return? I don't think I'm saying it perfectly, but is that, do you get what, is it yeah. resonating with you? And uh, another thing that I kind of thought of as you were talking about it is in the past, there was probably a little bit of a disconnect between publicly traded markets and privately traded, where maybe you could find 
uh, some some extra value, right? And I think as more people enter this space, even the ones that are maybe, the, I guess, better options, you would say, in that world, they're going to have more money injected into these where maybe at some point it does sacrifice the quality of the investment itself, right? I don't know if that's what you're getting at, but that, that was something that I thought of that it could mean that good alternative investments out there are a lot harder to find. And then two, there's going to be new bad actors that enter the space because it's the it's a sexy narrative to sell. Yeah, you, so you bring up two really good things. So one thing you're saying is that, hey, Trevor, there's going to be more money in this space. And I'm guessing that that more money is going to have an impact on the outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, because if we look at the historical outcomes, when there was only X amount of dollars, and now there's um, a lot of interest in X plus dollars, uh, you're exactly right. Like there's a common thing that they'll say in the finance industry that um, the the greatest enemy of performance is size. Mm-hmm. Like the more money that changes uh, char- uh, charges towards a, an asset class or a strategy um, will then remove the edge or the benefit that that has there. So that is true. I, I think um, where I'm trying to kind of connect the dots on this kind of causation and correlation part is that what I'm really scared about is I'm scared that people are going to think if it's illiquid, then I should expect a better return. And when you have a customer base that has an appetite, you will have a salesperson that wants to sell something. Yeah. So I'm, I'm afraid that as all these things come down uh, the pipeline of like micro ownership in um, classic cars mm-hmm. or um, I saw the other day, and this is, gosh, a little tangent, but it's worth saying it. Um, there was a, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Is it Hornus Wagner? Do you yeah, remember the famous so. baseball player? So he, uh, there's this famous baseball card that always gets like this this elevated price because it's an old baseball card. So there's this Hornets Wagner, or if I pronounced his name wrong, I'm sorry, um, but it was a ripped in half baseball card. Um, like literally, it was only the left side. It was ripped in half. They don't know where the other half is, but it was in one of the glass cases or whatever. I think it went for a half a million dollars. Crazy. So it's like there is this space of assets that are extremely illiquid. Do you think there's a lot of buyers of... Uh, half-ripped baseball cards, no. Um, So what I wanted to go through on at least our conversation today is if there is a correlation, not a causation, not that illiquid creates premium, but if there's a correlation between illiquid and premium, with our banking analogy, we said the reason those people stayed is because they had a great relationship with the bank. So what we need to look at now is let's peel back the curtain on what type of illiquid things could actually produce a premium. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, because the the idea should be that the premium doesn't just come from it being illiquid. It's there because it's a really good investment. Yeah, and there's a reason behind it. So I'm going to talk about three things, and it's not an exhaustive list. I'm sure there's other things. But if you're doing diligence on a potential investment that uh, your old college roommate's presenting to you, <laughs> um, then I would want you to use these factors to understand, hey, where am I going to derive this premium from? And just as a translation... When I say the word premium, I just mean a greater return than you would expect from something else. Um, So the first place I'm going to start is private equity. Um, Private equity has a strong history of getting a premium, a premium return over uh, the publicly traded markets. And without being too long-winded, you can read the article and I'll give you more details. But I I would say, hey, where does that premium return come from? Well, let's go one step backwards. The biggest driver of future returns is your starting valuation. Right now, 
And when I say valuation, I mean how many dollars do you have to pay for every dollar of profits a company produces? We call that a PE multiple, like a, just a, a multiple uh, on a stock. Right now in publicly traded markets, you might have to pay 22 or $23 for every dollar of earnings. What happens in private markets? There's less participants, mm-hmm. um, and you get, I guess, a, a better valuation. You might be able to buy companies at eight times earnings or 10 times earnings. So again, if future returns are heavily driven by starting valuations, private markets become pretty attractive. You gave a really good example when we were talking about this podcast uh, earlier. Uh, do you remember? I don't remember. In Help San me. Clemente, there's less bidders, right? Yeah. So we talked about, perfect. Yeah. We talked about if you have a tire shop in San Clemente um, and you want to go sell your tire shop, um, you're going to have a, a small group of people that might be interested in, in being buyers. It's probably not a good chance that somebody with a tire shop in Nebraska is going to go make a bid on, on your business. But how does that differ when we talk about selling a, a large publicly traded company on the New York Stock Exchange? You're going to get bidders from all around the right. world, and you're going to get tons of offers. So what that tells us is that when you have marketplaces with lots of participants, you get very efficient prices. Mm-hmm. But when you're buying private businesses, you understand that there's a risk. If I go buy ABC company on the publicly traded markets right now, and a surprise comes up in my life where I need money, I can go sell that very quickly. Mm-hmm can't sell that tire shop in San Clemente very quickly. So because of its illiquid nature, it introduces what people perceive as risk. So those valuations come down. Right. So I get a better starting valuation. And then we know in, in with private equity companies, they have a history of, of being pretty good. And people are going to laugh at me because there's some anecdotes of when they're not, but at using debt prudently. So when you get to go buy companies at really good starting valuations and then you get to add leverage to them, the premium is not coming from private equity being illiquid. Is it illiquid? It is illiquid. What's the premium coming from? The leverage. Leverage and And really good valuations. Yeah. Yeah. So then you start to understand, oh, I got it. So it's because they're private, they are illiquid. But it's the valuation and the leverage that's really driving your returns. And we could say the same thing about real estate. If you juxtapose real estate and stocks for longer time periods right next to each other, most of those time periods, and again, go to the charts. We can, we can look at it. There was a Orange County Register did a, a long article on this um, where they're saying, hey, stocks do better than real estate. Where I think they miss in that article, you can use so much leverage with real estate. Yeah. And that you, leverage you makes a huge difference. down and you have... 100% of the asset on your balance sheet. 100% of the al- asset on your balance sheet. You have the debt too, but then what do you get the return on? Not on your uh, down payment. Right. You get it on the total asset. In the total asset. So leverage makes a big difference. So now we just did a pretty quick breakdown to be like, oh, okay, private equity is a liquid, but now we understand where does the premium come from? Valuations. And it comes from leverage. So the next thing I, I want to look at is there are some hedge fund managers out there, right, where they make the rules mm-hmm. where they say, hey, Sean, you want to be an investor? Great. We're going to make you be pretty committed. Um, if you want to put money in our fund, we only do redemptions once a year and you can only take 20% per year. So at least you're committed for five years. Why would somebody do that? Well, if they have a really strong track record, 
which is represented by their skill, their infrastructure, their risk management uh, team that they've put together, they can call the shots. Mm -hmm. So what have you then created? You've created a fund that is illiquid. And it gives them the opportunity that they don't have to have the uh, the allocation or the cash available for daily or monthly or quarterly redemptions, which gives them the ability to have more invested. You're 100% right. And they also, they get a little freedom for some tracking error. Yeah. If somebody says, uh, you know, I could have bought, I don't know, the NASDAQ, that's me 500, and they're unhappy with performance, it gives a lot of freedom to the management team to say, we don't have to look like that. That wasn't our objective or our mandate uh, in, in our perspectives. So it gives them a, a lot of freedom. So this is synthetic or whatever you want to call it, self-created illiquidity. But where does the premium come from? It's the manager's skill. Mm -hmm. So again, it's something that is illiquid. Why is it illiquid? Because of demand and popularity that they then get to call the shots. But their premium is coming from manager skill. And I guess we should do a buyer beware that... Um, one of the biggest risks in alternative investments, it's not necessarily the illiquidity, because most people kind of understand that, that, all right, if I'm investing in this, I can't just pull my money out the next day. But it is also manager risk. So if you are doing your due diligence, make sure that you look at their track record. Uh, you're, I, I love that you said that, because I remember doing one of these podcasts with um, Kenny Molina, who sits on our alternative teams and kind of vets out this stuff, and Dea Pranas. And one of the things that they talked about that I... I realize I don't talk about enough. They care a lot about the business. Meaning like, hey, if we're going to invest with this alternatives manager, we don't do just diligence on the fund. We do diligence on the business. We want to understand the character of the people, um, how they do business and all these things. Because if that business goes under or or has complications. The fund's going to have issues. Yeah, yeah. You don't think there's going to be collateral yeah. <laughs> damage across the, the, the whole institution? 100%. So now we've expressed, okay, private equity is illiquid. That's not where the premium comes from. The premium comes from valuations and leverage. Mm -hmm. Some of these hedge funds are illiquid. That's not where the premium comes from. Premium comes from manager skill, mm -hmm. right? Now, the last one I'm going to say is that there are some investments. Um, we can fill in the blank with anything. Some of these investments are illiquid, and because they're illiquid, they force you to have a long stay to the course or stick to the course yeah they force you to have a longer time horizon and it's weird to say it this way a longer time horizon is an edge yeah well think about it it's it's almost it, i almost say it tongue-in-cheek but it almost stops the investor from making mistakes along the way to know that they can't go and make changes you know halfway through you nailed it it's not even tongue-in-cheek that's exactly what it is our industry likes to call it the behavior gap like this idea that um the, the way that they do the study is they'll look at like a, a high performing fund and they'll compare the fund's performance versus the average investor that owns the fund. Well, that doesn't make sense. Wouldn't they be the same? Well, no, because what ends up happening is the fund gains popularity and then people come piling in. And then if size is the enemy of performance, then the fund underperforms. So all of a sudden, the, the, the track record of the fund looks a lot different than what the average investor has experienced. Mm -hmm. So then you go back to this and say, okay, there's going to be some of these alternatives that are illiquid. And because of that, you're going to force yourself into a longer time horizon where you're going to shelter yourself from this behavior gap issue. And therefore, where does the premium come from? You kind of handcuffing your emotions because you don't have an ability to kind of 
get out of this or sidestep or make um, a knee-jerk reaction. And this side note, but it does help that these investments typically mark through different times. So having something mark monthly or quarterly is much easier during volatile times. Yeah. Instead of having red flash on your phone every day. I, I still think for my entire career, I will think back to 2020. Yeah. To think that the market in February started to take a dive, bottomed, I think, March 23rd of 2020. And then if you just look at kind of uh, major market indices, they had incredible years. So if you were if you were able to put a blindfold on, which some of this stuff, illiquidity is right. It's a blindfold. Yeah. Uh, if you ever put a blindfold on, you didn't even ever experience that. No. If you, there were people that did not really pay close attention, and they look at it maybe months later, and they go, oh, I saw it went down, but went back up. Like They, they were unaffected. I overquote this study, so maybe I'll have to put it to rest after this podcast. But I always think back to this uh, this Fidelity study that they did where they basically took, um, I don't remember how many uh, participants it was. It was a large enough sample size of 401k participants. Mm. And then they organized them, I think, by decile uh, to, to best performers. And then they went to that top decile or whatever the, the, the quadrants or, or, or not quadrants, whatever the, the separation mechanism. And they started to reach out to folks that had the best performing 401k plans. Because what they were trying to do is they were trying to say, do these people all have something in common that we right. therefore can say uh, most great investors have this attribute, right? Weren't they looking at like activity as well or something like that? I don't know. You could be right. I'd have to go back the the kind of uh, in uh, like maybe, number of transactions or changes or something like that. Yeah, I, I don't could know. Be wrong. Maybe it was not a different the, one. Yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe a different study. So for this study, they basically said, okay, this this group of people, large enough sample size, are the best. Now let's go reach out to these people and find common traits. So the number one common trait that they found... They didn't know they had a Fidelity account? <laughs> they forgot They forgot they had an account. <laughs> yeah, I bet. So, no, 100%. That was it. They forgot they had an account. So it is funny, but it, it's also this idea... I, I told a friend the other day, he was uh, asking for some help on the design of his 401k. And uh, I said, because he always likes to make changes and things like that. And I said, careful, this stuff's like soap. The more you play with it, the faster it disappears. Yeah. <laughs> so sometimes tinkering can be your worst enemy. But I'll bring us full circle. Uh, my experience at the bank, uh, looking back, was this idea that, hey, people can get causation and correlation really mixed up. So, you know, the bank wanted to retain customers. So they instituted a plan that had people pushing products on those folks, thinking that would keep people around. Gosh, that is crazy. So now we're in a world where you are going to be presented alternative investments and we are heavy users of our alternative investments. I am personally a heavy owner. What I am trying to encourage you is to say, I think David Swenson is an amazing investor uh, and one of the, the forefathers of our industry in understanding asset allocation and all of those things. And I appreciate, and I'm giving him credit because he's the first person I talk about this, this idea of this illiquidity premium. But what I don't want you to be fooled by is that if you find something that is illiquid, another way to say, if you find something that would be, if you bought it, it would be hard to sell it. It doesn't mean that you get a premium return just because it's illiquid. You need to pull on that thread more and understand what would drive this premium return 
for this particular investment. We try not to get too deep into the weeds on thoughts on money or use big finance language, but I felt motivated to write this article because, like I said, if you have a general population that says stocks feel overvalued and interest rates are low, I have an appetite for something that's not stocks or bonds, people are going to come out of the woodworks yep. creating products and presentations to deliver to you to solve for that problem that you are presenting. So like you said, buyers beware. Yep. Well said. I got nothing to add. Sean has nothing to add, which means he's saying we're done with the podcast. <laughs> so thanks for joining us today. Uh, we'll ask that you rate the podcast five stars are preferred. Um, leave comments on the podcast. Uh, we would love that. You can email us. Uh, you can address that email to Sean or Trevor. Very easy email address. Tom, T-O-M, at thebonsagroup.com. We'll get back to you with uh, questions or comments or ideas for future shows. And then uh, most importantly, we'll be back next week with more of our Thoughts Thoughts on on money. Money. The Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor before establishing a retirement plan.